Hey guys, how's it going? Tom Workis here, and welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches, the show some people are calling the cure for your common coronavirus. Quick shout out to Rob, who had this to say about In the Trenches. Quote, Tom really has a great grasp of today's business challenges, and his podcast helps professionals continue to push forward in their respective fields. I like how his interviews flow, and the information is applicable to most, if not all, industries. Thanks for helping keep the sidewalls of the trenches from collapsing in on me, Tom. Thanks, Rob. You're the man. I really appreciate your review. Today, I sit down with Danny Innie. I originally interviewed Danny on Broadcast 44 way back in the day. So you want to catch his backstory? Go there first. Today, we don't focus on Danny's founder story or origin story, but rather shift focus to e-learning, what it is, how it works, how the e-learning industry is growing and changing, and how to take advantage of it by creating and selling courses online. We also cover his latest book, Teach Your Gift, all about how to profit from e-course in 2020 and beyond, which will be available on Amazon when this broadcast goes live. So if you're listening to this, you should be able to find it on Amazon. So here's my big takeaway from today's conversation. It's possible to build a business around an e-course and e-learning in 2020. It's still a profitable venture. It just requires that, that you have a certain level of experience and skill set coming in, aka you have to be an expert. And it requires that you deliver more than just information. So gone are the days of somebody being able to just quickly whip up an e-course, put it online and make a lot of money from it. Not saying that that ever existed, but I think there's myths around that, that that could be the possible. And some people, I think we're able in the origin days, we'll say of things like Udemy to do that. But those days are, I think, long gone. There's still, it's still possible that a small percentage of people are able to do that. But I like to talk about tangible things, pragmatic things, practical things. Uh, you know, the hard truths like, hey, for most people, that's not possible. And I've done all sorts of experiments and tests and worked with all sorts of people doing these kind of things, evergreen courses, evergreen course promotions and campaigns and things like that. And it's not what you think it is. Evergreen doesn't really exist. So the hard reality is that e-course are business and a business model, just like anything else. And so you got to deliver on what people want with their learning. I think that's guidance, support, and community. And we get into the details in today's call as well as whether you can do this on the side as a side hustle, because when you, when you start to factor in guidance, support, community, all of a sudden it becomes, in my mind, more than just a side hustle effort. But we talk about that, and Danny gives his opinion and two cents. And we talk about when you should transition that side hustle into something full-time, and whether you should move your whole business into kind of an e-course business model or an e-learning business model, and what that means exactly. Because trust me when I say that an e-learning or e-course business, business model is different than maybe what you think it is. If you haven't built a successful, say, six to seven-figure e-learning business, then you may not be aware of that. But once you get into it, you realize that there's dynamics at play in terms of how you sell information, how you package it, how you promote it, and it becomes, it is its own business model. And I, I know I sometimes get fixated on things like that, but I think that's the most helpful stuff because most people don't talk about that. And every time when I'm talking to people who are aspiring to teach and sell online, many times, especially the beginners, forget the business model that's behind it. So I wanted to point that out and say that it's absolutely possible to build a proper e-course business, an e-learning business. You just got to come at it the right way and we can break it down into in today's interview. So before we begin, if you found today's episode helpful, useful, or insightful, or you just think I'm awesome and want to support the show, which is completely ad-free, by the way, please leave a review at tomworkus.com slash iTunes. Your honest five-star review means a lot to me and helps spread the word about this show so more people can benefit from the knowledge bombs we continually drop all the time on the show. All right, enough of that. You get the point. Now let's get to the good stuff. Today's interview with Danny Any. So Danny, give me the lay of the land right now in 2020. What is the state of e-courses 
we've had some uh, crazy turns and twists in the last couple of months, I think, too, that might have, might have compounded wherever we're at, wherever that space is at. But give me your kind of uh, perspective on the lay of the e-learning and e-course land as it stands today. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we need to do like a really super quick history lesson. Yeah. So um, whenever you have a, a new market emerge, you kind of go through a few phases. You start with you know the innovators and early adopters, and these are the people who are super excited about every new thing, and they're kind of on the fringes. And eventually, it kind of gets into the mainstream. And so, the way this kind of mapped onto the world of online courses is that you know online courses started becoming a thing for innovators and early adopters. Let's call it from the year. 2000 to 2015, right? In those days, it was really, really the wild, wild west. So, you know, a lot of courses about, um, you know, the, the, if you ask the marketer, what are the core human drivers? They'll say, you know, making money um, and financial security. They'll say um, love relationships and, and, you know, dating and that kind of stuff. And they'll say health and wellness. So, you know, getting paid, getting laid, staying alive. And so back in the day, like a lot of the courses were very on the nose in those areas. So, very high dollar, very expensive, $2,000 for a course, and it's a bunch of videos and a membership site. And, you know, that went on for a while and it kind of gained some steam in the fringes. But, you know, if, if you ask regular people in the world, you kind of stop someone on the street, you say, where can I take uh, a course? They'd say, well, I guess a university, a community college, like this was operating outside of most people's reality. And because it was nascent, because it was um, on the fringes because people still didn't know really what they were doing for, for all of those reasons, because you were talking to an audience of innovators, early adopters who, um, tend to be impulsive buyers. Um, there was a, a disproportionate amount of cost relative to the value that was being received. You know, over time, people started getting frustrated. There were a lot of people who bought courses, but it was an aspirational purchase. They didn't do anything with it. They didn't get results. They weren't happy with that. There were a lot of people who bought courses and the courses just weren't so great. So there was this growing disillusionment in the space. And it was slowly, slowly starting to become more mainstream aware. Then we get to the second phase where if you look at, um, let's call it 20, 2015, 2016 to like 2020. So up until pretty recently. And that's when the mainstream world started to wake up to the idea that online courses were a thing. And this is where a lot of venture capitalists were putting tons of money into software companies in the space or content companies in the space. So, you know, Udemy raised a ton of money and Creative Live raised a ton of money and Coursera raised a ton of money and a whole bunch of them. Um, Lynda.com was acquired by LinkedIn for a billion and a half dollars. That became LinkedIn Learning today. So there was a lot of like bringing online learning into the mainstream. And what we saw over the course of that five years was this kind of polarization of online courses into two camps. So one camp was information and the other camp was education. So very quickly, kind of the distinction. You know, if you look at the offline, you know, bricks and mortar world, the archetype of information would be a book in a bookstore. So think about that experience. You go to a bookstore, you find the book that purports to contain the information you're looking for, take it off the shelf, take it to the register, you pay for it, not a lot of money because information is cheap, right? So you're paying for the, the printing and the, the labor of putting it together and the warehousing and the inventory. But the, the amount you're actually paying for the ideas in there for the information is pretty small because the cost of reproducing those ideas is minimal. So you pay not a lot of money for that information. And once that transaction is complete, once you walk out of the bookstore, you're on your own. Nobody owes you anything. Not the author, not the bookstore owner, not the publisher. You know What you do with that is completely up to you. And that's the experience of information. Now, education, in contrast, think more like a university course. Now, university courses cost a lot more money. 
in partially because of market forces around educational inflation and all that. And, you know, that's a whole different conversation that I'm happy to have if you want. But also in part because it takes a lot more to deliver that course. There is infrastructure. There is the room that you're in. There is everything that goes into the experience. There's the campus. There's the salary of the professor and the teaching assistant. So there's a lot that goes into that. And, you know, you still have a responsibility to show up and do the work. If you don't do that, then you're not going to get anything out of it. But if you show up, if you do the work, if you do your part, it is reasonable for you to expect the teacher, the institution that is behind that course, it's reasonable to expect them to show up and do their part as well. So your success is a partnership. And so if we come back to the world of online courses, we saw this kind of polarization where courses that were information only, right? Essentially, they're like a glorified book in video or multimedia form, right? Those courses, the the prices on them were being pushed down dramatically, right? Those were the courses you'd find on a place like Udemy, where the average course is, you know, 50 or 100 or 150 bucks discounted 90%. And then on the other end, you've got the real education courses where people are continuing to be willing to pay a premium, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars, but they expect a lot more. They expect support, they expect coaching, they expect what it will take to get them to the finish line. And that was kind of the, the growing up period. And as we came into 2020, this landscape just came into its maturity. Like, you know, all online courses are suddenly things that people are thinking about in the mainstream. And now, of course, as we record this, we are right in the middle of a global pandemic, right? You know, businesses are shut down, schools are shut down. And a lot of, uh, a lot of the resistance that people had to, no, I don't want to do things online. I want to, you know, there's a value to in person. A lot of that resistance has fallen away by necessity. So in the last six weeks, we've seen, you know, a, a multiple, you know, X-fold growth in the interest in adoption of online courses. And a lot of people are asking, what's the world going to look like after this? And uh, there, there's this really interesting uh, study that was done, I think, in the UK, where they had, uh, you know, they've got a big public transit system. And there was a closure of some of the, the metro stops because they were doing, I don't know, repairs or something like that. And using uh, phone data, smartphone data, they were able to see where people go on their commute. So, of course, you know the, the metro stops are closed, so everyone who passes through there has to change their commute. But when those stops reopened, 90% of people went back to their old commute, but 10% of people stuck with the new commute. It turns out they'd been following this like less-than-ideal process maybe for years, maybe for decades, until they were forced to try something different. Now, we're usually relatively good at plotting a course, how do we get from here to my office, or whatever it is you need to go. But when there is something new or unfamiliar involved, we can be very reluctant. And so there are people who were resistant to the idea of online courses because it just wasn't optimal for what they were trying to do. But there were also a lot of people who were resistant because it's new, because it's unfamiliar. And now that they've been forced to try it, and a lot of people are finding out that actually, hey, this is pretty good. We can do pretty cool stuff with it. I think we're going to see a, a lot of this increased demand will stick. So th- that's kind of where we are. That's the lay of the land in, in like five minutes. Does that change the dynamic then of where you should put your time and energy when it comes to, say, creating a course. And it, what I mean by that is like knowing that these premium style offers, the really expensive ones that we're kind of like accustomed to and used to seeing, knowing that that can work for sure, um, is that the direction we have to go? Or is there a place for smaller courses, um, simpler stuff that doesn't involve coaching, community, et cetera. Maybe kind of give us, break it down for us in that perspective and like, so that people who are listening can think about like maybe the business model behind this. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that e course, like an e course business model, a lot of times does necessitate 
uh, membership or, or things like that, or it can often, I feel like it does with a lot of people I work with, and then like higher level masterminds and things like that. But can you maybe give us some insights in terms of how you view like the business model of e-courses or how it could supplement maybe an existing business and how you kind of, I guess, unpack that problem? Yeah, so so I love that question because you know there is complexity. You know, in the early days where you could sell essentially very little for a lot and traffic was cheap, you could build. It's generous to call it a business when really it's based on loopholes and things that aren't going to last. But you could build a viable income stream, you know, selling a digital only set it and forget it kind of experience and make a ton of money. But you know, that was a moment in time. That's not how things work right now. Not, there isn't a massive opportunity. There is, but it looks different. So um, let's start with the, the, the passive income fantasy yes. and why it's a fantasy. <laughs> and Because um, it's not a fantasy for everyone, but it's a fantasy for most people. And once you understand why that won't work for most people, it, it makes clear what most people do have the possibility of doing. So in order for, for you to create passive income in your business, you need two things. You need um, a low price. And you need a high volume. And let's unpack why you need both of those things. You need a low price because if it's a high price, it's not passive. right? If you want to sell someone something that costs thousands of dollars, there is labor and interaction and effort involved in the sale process. right? Most people, most normal mainstream buyers are not spending that kind of money on, on an impulse or on a whim. So if it's, not, if it's a high price, it's going to be work to sell. And if they spend that kind of money, they're going to expect a lot in the delivery. They're going to expect transformation, as we just talked about. So maybe that's accountability, maybe it's support, maybe it's coaching. So if it's a high price, it's not passive. Now, why do we need a lot of volume? Because if it's got to be a low price, you know, if you multiply a low price by a small number, it's just not much income. So for it to be a meaningful amount of passive income, it's got to be a low price and a high volume. So then the question becomes, where do you get the high volume? Where will those customers come from? And this is the business model challenge that uh, the idea of a low-priced course creates for, for most people, which is it's hard to acquire customers. So really, uh, back of the napkin math, you, if you want to figure out what you can afford to spend to acquire a customer, you take your retail price and divide it by three. So obviously, there's a lot of like edge cases and situations that are a little bit different. But by and large, in the online course business, you can take your retail price and split it three ways. A third of the retail price goes to fulfillment. Right. So if you pay a thousand dollars for a course that I'm selling you, then I can spend $333 on the workbooks that I'll send you in the mail and the little gift that makes you feel good about being my customer and the money I pay to the coach who's going to support you and all that kind of stuff. So a third goes to fulfillment. Another third goes to contribution profit, which is, you know, paying off your overhead expenses and if there's enough of it actually being profit in your pocket. And that leaves a third for customer acquisition. Now, if it's a thousand dollar course, you know, you can, you can spend $333. That's a fair amount of money. You can do interesting things. You can run ads. You can uh, pay a salesperson. You can, you can afford to spend money to acquire a customer. But if it's a low price course, and we're talking about like a $100 course, maybe even less, a third of that just isn't very much money and it's hard to acquire customers in a scalable, sustainable way. So you can get around that if you can essentially access very cheap traffic. So if you own the number one search ranking on Google for a super high traffic keyword, and essentially like you've had that forever, you're not going to be uprooted, so you get tons of traffic for free, then great. You can get customers very cheaply. You can sell them something cheap. It can be passive. 
right? If you've got a giant email list because you've built it over the course of decades or because you're an internet celebrity or whatever it is, same thing, right? That's the, the Kylie Jenner strategy for, for building a successful business, right? She built Kylie Cosmetics to I don't know how many billion dollars in revenue because she had all these million followers who are already following her. She didn't have to pay to acquire those customers. They kind of came built in with her brand. So if you're coming from this place where you can access you know, massive cheap traffic in a way that gives you like a, a really substantial unfair advantage, then you can do the passive income route. But if you are building a real business that is not dependent on one of these unfair advantages, if you've got to acquire customers one by one, then you need to be able to do it in a way that's cost effective. And so it's very hard to make that math work and have it add up to a lot if you're not selling a course for a premium. And I like that opportunity better. Because if you're going to go in at that very, um, you know, very low price mass market kind of range, there's going to be a ton of competition, right? That's where, you know, celebrities are teaching courses on masterclass, right? So imagine as a case in point, let's say that you are a screenwriting instructor, right? You know, at $100 for a course, you're competing with Aaron Sorkin, who wrote The West Wing and A Few Good Men and is on masterclass. And it's very hard for someone who doesn't have Aaron Sorkin's credentials and the masterclass production budget to compete with Aaron Sorkin and masterclass. But there's an opportunity that's opened up because Aaron Sorkin is on masterclass. He is doing the heavy lifting with the whole masterclass infrastructure along with Coursera and Udemy and all these other places. They're doing the heavy lifting of letting the, the budding screenwriters of the world know that, hey, I can take online courses and I can learn about this. So they find masterclass. They take Aaron Sorkin's course. They enjoy it. They learn some stuff. But you know that kind of content is more edutainment than education, right? You can learn stuff and it's interesting, but nobody expects to become a good screenwriter by watching a bunch of videos. And so when they've gone that far, and now there's all these people who are suddenly aware of the opportunity, they say, where can I go to really deepen my knowledge and skills, right? Where can I go where I'm going to get coaching and support and really level up my abilities? And Aaron Sorkin's not going to do it. He's busy writing scripts, right? He doesn't have that energy or attention or bandwidth. He has other things to do. But that's where the aspiring screenwriting instructor who's got solid credentials and as good as what they do, but don't have that celebrity cachet or reach, they can say, you know, I can work with you. I can take you from where you are at to a whole new level. And it's going to cost you a few thousand dollars, but you're going to get more than your money's worth. It's going to be totally worthwhile. So that's how I tend to think about the business model. And you can also build lower price type courses, not for the purpose of selling. Um, or not selling as a core offer. You could make them part of your marketing so it makes things more streamlined as you get customers in the door. It can be part of service delivery. It can be an add-on, right? Like uh, basically the equivalent of would you like fries with that? So you're already getting the customer the way you would for your business anyway, but you're adding additional revenue. And and that can be substantial, right? When you, when you think of the add-on, you think often small numbers, but it doesn't have to be small numbers, right? A great example of this is Walt Disney. Right, the Walt Disney business—it's it's fundamentally a movie business. That's the core business. But the parks, which are an add-on, right? Did you really like seeing Frozen? Well, why not come and meet Elsa in person at the Magic Kingdom or whatever? That's an add-on. It's a—it's the equivalent of would you like fries with that? But the parks make up more than double the revenue of the movie studios. So it's a massive add-on, even if it is an add-on. So, so that's kind of how I think about the business model. Yeah, it's fascinating too. Like, I, I, you know, to zoom in on extract one point of that, which isn't business model related per se, but almost like, uh, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting to think about. Because if you don't have the fame, if you don't have the brand already, you know, one of your value propositions, 
might is not going to be that, but it can be the time or effort you can put into something. I mean, I feel like when I was getting started and kind of side hustling and building what I was building, that was absolutely like the value proposition. Like, okay, maybe I haven't worked on a ton of stuff yet, but I've done a few and they've been pretty successful and I can I can walk you through it. That was when I was doing kind of more implementation. But then when that transitioned into coaching um, and teaching and through courses, it was very similar because I didn't have the biggest names that I've worked with, but I had some notable... I had a notable track record at that point. But most importantly, um, I could differentiate myself by 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 coaching, by helping somebody through it. And so this sounds like this is what you would typically recommend somebody look into, like consider that as a, a portion of their business. Like I guess my question would be, if somebody doesn't have that built in or isn't, would think to themselves like, oh, I'd love to do courses, but I really don't want to do the coaching piece. Do I have to accept that knowing that I, there's no other way but the volume play? Like I think a lot of people aren't realistic with it. It's not that you have to do coaching. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that mm-hmm. you have to do coaching, but you do have to deliver a transformation. Mm. Right. And so when you go about designing a course, um, you know, you, you, first of all, you don't want to start with, I know about X. I'm going to teach right. you about X. You don't want to start with the content. You want to start with the customer and what is the outcome they want. Right. Right. So in, in the world of education, this is called backward integrated design. So you want to start by asking when this is all said and done, what do I want them to know? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to remember? What do I want them to be able to do? Right. So, so among that is what do I want them to learn? What do I want them to know? And a second level to that is not just what do I want them to know, but how well do I want them to know it? Right. I could teach a class on, on Hamlet and there's a very big difference in terms of levels of knowledge, in terms of level one being, um, you, we're, we're, by the way, we're, um, we're, we're all like sequestered at home. So if you can hear my kids screaming in the background, I apologize. No, all good. Um, but you know, level one of knowing Hamlet might be that you can tell me the gist of the story. And level two might be that you can recite it. And level three might be that you can perform it. It's the same content, but it's very different levels of knowledge and skill. So you want to ask yourself for the outcome that they want, how well do they need to know it? And then you've got to be honest with yourself about what do I have to put on the table to support them in getting there? Right. Because if I just want them to know the story of Hamlet, you know what? I could create a, you know, 30 minute video course, tell the story. And that's probably all you need. But if I want you to be able to perform it well, then you know a bunch of videos isn't going to be enough. You're going to need to rehearse. You need to be able to show someone what you're doing. You need to be able to get feedback. Like All that has to be built in. And that doesn't mean you have to necessarily provide all that feedback mm-hmm. kind of one-to-one. It means you have to resource the provision of that feedback. So you can build that with, with peer feedback-based structures. You could um, hire a coach, right? I mean, I... I run an education company. Mm-hmm. We have thousands and thousands of students who get very involved coaching. Not all from me, but I have coaches who do it. And that's where you know I, I mentioned early the, earlier the unit economics. So if you can justify a third of what they're paying you to kind of go towards fulfillment, well, on a $1,000 course, that's $333 per student that you can pay a coach to support them. So as long as that math works, it's scalable. Yeah, that's a good good differentiation, good good point um, on the coaching versus more just like the support. And that I I didn't want to get that confused because that is an important distinction. But I think it it comes to comes back to the point that I think it's the truth and the writing on the wall here that that part of this entails um, that there is some aspect of that you know in terms of like the community and support. And so for people who are interested in doing this, like just because I do have a lot of conversations with people, and some people are like, oh yeah. It's that kind of that pipe dream a little bit, that um, recurring revenue pipe dream where they don't really have to ever wake up because the course just sells itself and teaches people. 
And so if you come at it from that mindset, I think you're going to be um, unpleasantly surprised. But if you come at it from the point of view of service and like what you can help somebody solve or, or produce or do, and then you think about how that integrates the backward planning kind of like you discussed, it seems like an optimal point for anybody to jump in. So let me ask you this. And I think this is kind of the natural outgrowth of that is if, I, if I'm listening to this, let's say I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will already have courses or something like that, maybe ebooks or things they maybe dabble with on the side. But I'm, I also believe that many will not. And this could be their first foray into it. What makes a good topic? And, and, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that and we'll see where we go. I, I, so I love that question. Um, and, and there's this uh, ikigai diagram going around the internet. It's like these four circles that intersect. And it's kind of asking yourself, what's the overlap between what you love to do and what the world needs from you and what the world will pay for and like all that kind of stuff. Mm. So you're kind of looking at that same type of intersection. You're looking at what is it that people need, right? What is the, the urgent need that people feel that you, know, you, you have knowledge that can solve that intersects with your knowledge and interest and expertise, right? So where does that fit? Now, generally speaking, you know, people come to me, it's rare. This actually goes to the evolution of the landscape. Right. If I go back like five, seven, 10 years, I used to have a lot of people come to me and be like, I want to make money on the internet. Right. I want to build a course. What's a good topic to, to, to sell about? And I'll go learn about that. Right. There was the old truism that, you know, if, if you read five books on a topic, you know more about it than anyone but a real expert. So that makes you a de facto expert. Right. And, you know, real experts take umbrage at that, at that idea. You know, people who've spent years or decades developing an expertise. Um, and my thought when I heard that was always like, you know, there's a difference between reading five books and understanding five books, but you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so most people that I encounter these days, they're not like wanting to make a quick buck. And so they're shopping around to be like, what's the opportunity? Rather, the people who tend to get excited about online courses today, because remember, we're past that innovator, early adopter, opportunistic phase. It's people who have real meaningful expertise in their field. So, you know, I'm, Sure, most of the people who are listening to this, they have deep, meaningful, impactful expertise. They've spent years or probably decades developing. And, and there are a lot of paths to developing that expertise. So maybe they have a formal credential, maybe they don't. Maybe they have life experience. Maybe they've experimented with things. Maybe it's the intersection of different things they've done. But you know, there is a, a short and sometimes not so short list of things that you can honestly say that if someone comes to you and needs help with this area, you are very well qualified. You are very capable of helping. And if someone needs help with something important and you can help, that's the, that's the good topic. Now, you need to go deeper than that. You need to find what is the right angle that's going to be compelling, right? You need to find like what is the scope of the content. But in terms of the broad topic, I find most of the people that I, I have the privilege of interacting with these days, they're, they're not, um, they're, they're not looking for where can I make up some expertise. They have it. And if you can meaningfully help someone with something, that makes it valuable. Agree, 100%. Let me ask you this. Do you think it's possible for somebody to do this or some aspect of it, like incorporate e-learning e-courses into their business or side hustle or something like that, depending on where they're starting, um, and do it just as that, do it as a side business? Or do you feel like it's once you go down this path, um, it becomes something that you have to integrate kind of fully? Like, I don't want to say like becomes a full-time job. That's not exactly what I mean. Um, but I'll just leave it at that if that makes sense. Otherwise, I can clarify that question. Um, well, it's, it's a great question. I could come at it from a few different angles. Um, so, so let me share actually an anecdote. This goes back probably five or six years for me. 
but it was it was December. I was kind of like wrapping up the year. I was on the holiday break, and I was kind of thinking about my plan for the next year. And I had worked for for a bunch of years. My business had grown. I was probably four or five years into the business at that point. So you know, we were doing a couple million dollars a year in revenue. And I kind of just took stock and I thought about, well, what do I want to do next? And what I realized was, you know, I could probably like kick back for most of the year. I could work three or four months out of the year and we'd, you know, gross a million and a half dollars and, you know, I'd take home a good portion of that. Like I could do that. But then I looked in the mirror. I was like, you know, I was in my early 30s. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to retire at 30. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not done building things in the world. And so I've continued to work very hard because I have bigger ambitions and I continue to do things. Um, and I share that story because, you know, my experience is that it's a lot more work to grow something or to build something from scratch than it is to hold something the way it is. So the effort that you'll make to go from not having a course to having a course, you know, that's going to be work. The effort that you're going to go from to, to, to go from like 10 students a year to 100 students a year, that's work. But the effort to say, now that I have 100 students a year, I just want another 100 students the next year, that's a lot less work. So, you know, for a lot of people, they start down this path and they realize they really like it and they find it rewarding and they love the freedom and they love the impact and the leverage and all these things. And so they keep doubling down on it. So, you know, what starts as a side hustle can very well become a full-time thing. But really, as long as you're self-aware and honest with yourself, you know, you can push at it until you reach the point where you're like, this is all I want. And then you can ease off the gas quite a lot. In terms of, uh, I think this is another sticking point for course creators too. Is uh, is on the 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 lead front, the lead generation front, um, and knowing the market and kind of knowing that it's kind of uh, we'll say matured a little bit. What do you think works these days in terms of like? Well, I guess I could say just lead generation broadly speaking, and then maybe if you want to zoom in on any kind of practical tips and tricks or anything like that. I don't want to say tricks. But anything that might be working these days, like current current events, um, and I'll just give you one example. Like for me, what still worked, uh, still seems to work, is the right kind of partnerships, um, like affiliate type stuff, partnership driven stuff. But I've been doing that for so long, my brain just kind of gets it. Whereas like pay traffic, I, I never quite mastered. And some of these other sources, I know some people who are just killer at social media. Um, so I know the answer will be it depends, but I'm curious if you can kind of give people maybe a path forward in terms of like what they can think about um, if they want to go on this path, first course, how they could say get their first 100 customers. Um, yeah, sure. So, uh, so, so you're right. It it does depend, um, but let me give some context around that. Mm. Um, you know, there's a tendency, and, and by the way, you know, you mentioned uh, buying ads and paid traffic and all that. That's something that I've never spent a lot of effort. On either, um, but for everyone who's like it's too hard, it's too expensive. Like right now with the crisis that's going on, you know everyone is online. The inventories have doubled, and most big companies have slashed their ad budgets. The competition has declined, so online advertising is actually as cheap as it's been in the last six or seven years. So that's just food for thought for anyone who's listening to this right now. But more broadly, in terms of like should I should I do this strategy? Should I do that strategy? It's very common in the the online marketing, online business world to, you know, you, you attend a webinar, you hear about some expert who's doing, you know, this one's killing it in Facebook ads, this one's killing it with messenger bots, this one's killing it with webinars with partners or whatever it is. And there's a strong instinct to have this idea of like, well, I want to build like a Frankenstein kind of business where I'm going to have this person's ad strategy and that person's social media strategy and this person's live event strategy. 
And if I do that, I'll just have this like super $20 million business. And you know, this is not just something the beginners do or people early in their journey, like people who have you know, meaningful success, millions of dollars in revenue, and they're like, okay, it's time to grow. Great, now I'll just graft onto my business <laughs> all these models from other people. And it never works. And the reason it doesn't work is that you know, the reason why you know, Nick Kuzmich kills it at Facebook ads or Suzanne Evans kills it at live events or you know, Molly Mahoney kills it with messenger bots or whatever it is, is that their, their DNA, their thinking, their experience, their organization is built around this core competency, mm. right? And so they make it look easy because that's what they're wired to do. And so if you want to be successful, you, you shouldn't be emulating what every other person is doing. You should be finding what will be in your DNA. What are you going to be wired to do, right? And so in order to find that, you, you need to understand there are three ingredients to, to a business that works well with online courses. The first is a course that people want to buy. And this is the most important thing. This is the thing that most people kind of gloss over, skip over, and they're like, I need more traffic. I need help with my webinar. But like the offer sucks. Nobody wants to buy the course. And so if you don't have a, a product that people want to buy, it doesn't matter how good you are at the rest. Right. And, and in the past, when traffic was ridiculously cheap, or if you own the first page of Google or that kind of stuff, you could get away with something that people don't want as much because traffic is, you know, never ending and cheap. So even if your conversions suck, it still kind of works. But you can't do that today. So you need a course that people actually want to buy. Presuming you have something people actually want to buy, you need one lead source that works really well and one conversion path that works really well, right? There's all this talk about multiple streams of income and lead sources coming from all directions. That's nonsense. You don't need a million of these. You just need one of each that works really well for you. And so when it comes to which lead source and which conversion path, you want to look for, you know, just like we talked about that Ikigai diagram with like, you know, the, the intersection of a bunch of things. So you're looking for the intersection of where do the people you want to reach hang out, right? Where can you intercept them? Where can you reach them? Are they on social media? Are they aggregated on the lists of influencers in your industry? Do they show up at certain live events or, uh, or, or networking opportunities? Do they hear people speak from certain stages? Are they on social media? Do they read certain publications, et cetera, et cetera? You want to look at what aligns with your strengths and your interests. And that's not quite the same as staying inside of your comfort zone, right? Presumably to get a result you don't already have, you're going to have to do something that you're not doing yet. But, you know, let's say we're talking about running ads. Running ads requires some sophistication. We're thinking about numbers and analysis and conversion rates. So someone is just like, I can't, I'm not a numbers person, right? That might not be the best route for them to go. Right. If you know, if you determine there's a bunch of ways to reach your people, but speaking on stages is one of them, and you're like, you know, agoraphobic and getting on stage in front of people just freaks you out and you're like, I can't do that. Right. Then that's not the strategy for you. So you need to find where can you reach them and what is the strategy that will play to your strengths that you're you're probably not good at it now, because if you were already good at it, you already be having these results. We're talking about getting a result that you don't already have, but that you have the aptitude to get good at it. Right, you could put in the time and the work, and in six months or twelve months or eighteen months, you could be very good at it. So you're looking at the intersection of where they are, what is a modality that speaks to your 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 innate skills and abilities, and third, what is a process, what is a path that lines up with that um, unit economics math we talked about. Right. So you know, super back the napkin. Let's say that you're going to convert one out of fifty leads who come to you from an ad, and you're going to pay five dollars. For, uh, for a lead that comes in through the ads, right? That's $250 for a customer. 
right? Does the price of your course support that? So you're kind of looking at the intersection of those things. And that will lead you to, you know, maybe you're going to be writing guest posts or doing podcast guesting. Maybe you're going to be doing webinars or JV swaps. Or there, there are a lot of strategies that you can do. And we work with our students on a lot of these strategies. But like without knowing about someone's specific business, like a strategy can be the best strategy in the world, but that doesn't mean that's where their customers are, are going to be found or responsive to. I love it. Um, I really kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's been fascinating like these last few weeks for sure. Being somebody's in the space already doing this and seeing, um, seeing a little bit of the impact in my own business and through the conversations of people around me, this, this transition online in some ways that people are going through right now, uh, did not expect it. You know, I thought it was like almost like the market was super saturated, but here we are. And I think there's more demand now than ever for this kind of stuff and done well. And done, and I was. Well, the, the marketing wasn't saturated. What's that? The market, so, so the market wasn't no. saturated at all. Here's the funny thing: it's one of these things where, like, you can be in a nightclub and your head is like ten feet from the speakers, and it's so loud that, like, you can't imagine anyone in the world not hearing this. But like three blocks down the street, nobody knows this is even going on, right? So it's it's been a little bit like this in the world of internet marketing and online courses. The funny thing is that most people who are listening to this, maybe the idea of online courses has been on their radar for years, if not decades. But for most of the world, this is something they're just waking up to. Right? I was on, um, you know, it, it was the holidays. So we had like a holiday dinner. And, you know, people in my family are like, so, so let's figure out how to do it on the Zoom. Right. Right. Like, you know, just like people used to talk about the Facebook. <laughs> It's the same kind of thing. And they're talking about like this, it's like this brand new technology that's like suddenly possible. Right. And, and, you know, we forget that just because we've been swimming in it for so long. Yeah. Most of the world is just waking up to it. Right. The, the world is full of teachers who've had to take their classes online, like elementary school teachers or high school teachers have had to do it basically overnight. And they have no idea how to do it. The guidance they've been given is literally like, and I've heard like this is literal, literal feedback from, from teachers that I've I've corresponded with, like their their guidance and training has been, you know, you know, you know how to use YouTube, right? There's videos there, like as if that is, you know, instructional right. guidance. So it's it's very saturated in a very limited subset of the industry, and the doors are I shouldn't say doors, the floodgates are just opening to the rest of the world. And that was already beginning to happen when the global pandemic kind of like kicked it into overdrive. So it's a very exciting time to be operating in this space. Yeah. And you know, I'll sum it up by this too, like, or adding on to that point too, not necessarily summary, but when I see that too, I, I also see not only more people than shopping, like you mentioned, like supply demand, you know, at a very basic level, and there's more people, but that's going to lead, it's like, what's the lifetime value of that person who's now doing, like has now embraced some level of you know e-learning. I think they'll find themselves going and purchasing other courses and stuff like that. So the ramifications of this will be very positive, I think, for anybody who's who's doing it right in the space. And I was going to say this too, um, voice. You know, I, I see a lot of people who are like, people come to me with, with, with challenges or questions like, how, how do I kind of you know this market seems let's say a particular niche is really crowded or, or um, seems like really competitive. It's it's still surprising to me today, even though it shouldn't surprise me. It really, well, maybe it doesn't surprise me anymore, but kind of still does. Where you can have a market or a niche where there might be a lot of competition, and yet you could still carve out a place for yourself that's very healthy. Like I, I don't like to just throw out random numbers, but like a healthy, we'll just say a healthy living that you can make doing something like this 
in whatever niche if you just kind of commit to your voice too. Like that goes with all the facets that you're, you know, that you're an expert, you're good at what you do. But you know, if let's say with all those prerequisites, you follow the steps that somebody like you, Danny, teaches, like in your book and your course. We'll talk about maybe that in a second and direct people there. But you know, once you get that, it's just having your own voice, and people will be attracted to you because of your voice. It's very fascinating. Like you'd be teaching the exact same thing as the person right over here, and your delivery, how you talk, um, the way you communicate attracts people. I'm still astounded to this day the people who who are attracted sometimes to my work because I'm like, oh, it takes a very particular kind of person. It was a very particular kind of mind, you know what I mean? To to understand it and then to go with it and and get a ton of value out of it. But that truly is a tremendous, um, I guess, opportunity. I, I guess that's the only way I see it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Danny. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And and you know, fundamentally, people often ask me um, some variation of of the question of you know, what if the space I'm going into is very crowded, right? And and the answer is, first of all, I mean, I like crowded spaces. Crowded means lots of people have interest. Right, that's a lot better than a space nobody's in because then you know nobody's looking. But you know, let's say it's crowded. What you want to do is look around at the landscape and basically ask yourself what's missing, right? And you know, being just having some intellectual honesty with yourself. If you really look around the landscape and you're like, you know, there's this expert and this expert and this expert, and they're teaching all the right things in all the right ways, and the price is right and it's super reasonable, and I think they're they provide all the support they should, and like everything's amazing. Right? If anyone needs help, they should go to those people. Then don't start a business in that space. But if, if you're looking around, you're like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of good players, but I feel like something's missing. And something missing can be in what is being taught, like in the content. Something missing can be in the modality of, of how it's being delivered. Like, you know, is there coaching? Is there support? Are there the right, you know, setups of, of instruction? And something missing could be about the style or voice of the instructor. Right, it could be a question of does the customer see themselves in 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 this person that they're going to learn from, right? Because we we have to see it first in order to be it. So we we want to learn from someone who embodies who we want to be. When I talk uh, to people about marketing, one of the pieces that go into that is I, I call it the resonant identity, and the resonant identity is about the intersection of these two kind of semi opposing traits. One is aspiration. Right? They look at you and they say, you're who I want to be when I grow up. And the other is relatability, which is you're just like me. And there's some tension between those two things, right? You know, you're just like me and you're who I want to be when I grow up. And yet that balance point is, is what charismatic leadership really comes down to. And so if people are, are in your industry and they're looking to learn things and they're good instructors, they're good teachers, there's good content, but they're not finding someone who they want to be when they grow up and just like them, Right. And you should know because, you know, presuming you're just like them, you should have the same frustration. If you're looking around the industry and you're like, there's, there's nobody who speaks to me, content notwithstanding, then that tells you something's missing. And that is a gap in the market. I love it. And it should just get everybody's minds kind of open to, I think, the possibilities here. So I highly recommend looking into all this. I guess the ultimate question now is going to be like, okay, I'm pumped up. I'm hearing this. What next? What now? So, Danny, um, where should people go to find you, connect with you, learn more about you? Tell them a little bit about the book too. I think that's a great place for anybody to start as well. Yeah, and, and thank you for asking. So um, like Tom said, I've got a new book that just came out. It's called Teach Your Gift. Um, and it, it's, I, I basically wrote this book because I'm having more and more conversations with really great qualified experts who are thinking, you know, I think it's time for me to get online, build an online course. And then as I go into the conversation with them, it kind of becomes apparent that they're working from a playbook that's like five years out of date. 
And so I wrote the book to kind of set the record straight. This is not where things were five years ago. This is where things are now. This is what works now. So the book is called Teach Your Gift. You can get it on Amazon, you know, paperback, Kindle, whatever. Um, but we're also giving away copies for free during a limited window. So depending on when you're listening to this, you might have to go to Amazon and spend like 10 bucks. But um, if you go to teachyourgiftbook.com, um, you'll see you know, what's the best opportunity available, including probably, um, or hopefully at least you can get, the, get a copy of the book for free. Um, and if not, it'll point you to, 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 the next best, uh, to the next best thing, teachyourgiftbook.com. I love it. Danny, thank you so much for joining us on In the Trenches again. It was a real pleasure. Tom, it was my pleasure and my privilege. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone who's been listening. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating review. Just go to tomworkus.com slash iTunes, and that'll take you to iTunes where you can leave a five-star rating review. And that really helps spread the word about this podcast. And finally, if you need help growing your online business or generating new traffic leads and sales at a profit, reach out to me at tom at tomworkus.com or head over to the website tomworkus.com and sign up for the free newsletter. That's it for today. Stay frosty.